0: Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, a.k.a. Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music.
1: Are you looking for a podcast today?
0: Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast where I pick a bird species and tell you all you need to know about them, from how they got their scientific name, to their life history, and how they evolved. I read all the research papers so you don't have to, and bring you the best and weirdest facts. Today we'll be talking about a falcon awesome bird, the peregrine falcon. This super widespread and once nearly extinct bird has so much written on it, so I was able to find some really cool facts and stories. By the end of this episode, you'll learn why archaeologists love this bird, what the hell an EI is, and why, in my opinion, peregrine falcons are the most human-like bird. I'm recording right now from First Landing State Park in Virginia Beach, Virginia. It's morning time, so there's some great bird sounds, a little bit of wind in the trees, and it's Virginia Beach, so there's, of course, some traffic noise in the background, too. Thanks to Tabby TNT for suggesting this episode. I love doing listener-suggested episodes. If there's a bird you want to learn more about, be sure to drop me a line, dirtybirdpodcast.gma.com, or on Instagram at dirtybirdpodcast. Also, a big thanks to Jakob, who left me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Dankeschön, Jakob! And to all you listeners, if you have an iPhone, please, please, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. Jakob wrote his review while he was enjoying a beer at Big Timber Brewery in beautiful Elkins, West Virginia. Uh, I will say here, Big Timber beers, they are the best beers to go birding with. So if you're ever going through West Virginia, stop at their tap house or just buy a six-pack and uh, enjoy the birds and beer. And one last shout-out to Steve, who recently contacted me on Instagram and even sent me an awesome picture of a very lazy morning dove nest made on his backyard hose. Check out the Dirty Bear Podcast Instagram or Facebook to see it. Alright, so all my shout-outs are done. Let's get on with the show. I'm really excited to do this episode on the peregrine falcon. It's such a cool bird and pretty well-known by the general public. Its huge claim to fame, of course, is being the fastest animal alive, capable of reaching speeds of 238 miles per hour. But what physical adaptations do they have that allow them to go that fast? And how did the falcon family evolve in the first place? We'll talk about all that and more, and by the end of this episode, you will be an expert on the peregrine falcon. This bird has been intimately tied to humans for thousands of generations, so there's a lot of stories, information, and research on them out there. In fact, after the Barn Owl, they are the second most researched raptor. Honestly, if I try to go in detail about all the myths, gauze, and history of Falcons and people and falconry, Uh, this episode would be like 10 hours long, so I'm going to mostly, you know, just focus on like the biology um, and behavior, evolutionary history, that kind of stuff. Um, There'll be some cool facts, you know, mixed in anyways um, about them and humans. Um, I'm sure there's stuff that I'll probably get wrong or leave out entirely, so just, you know, be sure to write in and tell me uh, what I messed up. Um, I'm not lying when I say I read over a hundred research articles to make this episode. Um, so I definitely, you know, tried to put in my work, but there's just so many papers out there, I had to cut myself off at some point. So let's start off with their name, Peregrine Falcon, with the easy scientific name, Falco Peregrinus. Falcon comes from the word falx, which is a Latin name for like a sickle, or really any kind of curved, sharp metal object. Like the weapon Falks, which was this like devilish curved weapon you've probably seen in medieval video games and movies. This is in reference to the sickle shape of many falcon wings in flight. Um, Usually you see these birds from below as they're flying high up in the sky, um, and they appear like a sickle with short straight tail and a narrow head stuck on them. The meaning of Peregrin or Peregrinus in Latin means foreigner or pilgrim. This comes from the way peregrine falcons were captured and used for falconry. Um, They used to kind of capture them while they were about to fly out for their um, first flight, uh, their migratory flight, um, when they were juveniles. So, um, the word pilgrim or foreigner refers to their migratory practices. It's kind of cool that, you know, these are pilgrim falcons, basically. Um, I can't help but picture them with like a little black buckle hat, you know. (laughs) The practice of falconry itself predates the Latin word um, for these birds by a long shot. At least 5,500 years ago, nobles in Iran hunted with falcons, and references to it even pop up in the Epic of Gilgamesh. I feel like maybe, you know, because I was educated in the West, I always think about falconry tied with like, you know, medieval lords or knights or something. Um, But actually, it started in the Middle East, and then it spread from there. Um. Actually, it was originally brought to Europe by the Huns. So thanks, Attila, for bringing us falconry. Alright, but back to the biology of these birds, or I'll never finish this episode. Uh, to give a description of the peregrine falcon, it's a medium-sized raptor, notable for its long pointed wings, dark hood and face, and feather barring on its belly, legs, and tail. The pointed wings especially help differentiate... Uh, the peregrine falcon from similar raptors, such as the year falcon. If you're in southern Patagonia, you may run across a rare polymorph of the peregrine falcon, called the pallid falcon, so named for the white plumage, which makes it seem almost like a snowy owl in falcon form. This color variation is caused by specific genes for lighter coloration, Peregrine falcons have such a wide range that even among subspecies there are so-called different races that exhibit differences in feather color. These color variations are possibly related to where the peregrine habitat is. Um, I found documentation of the peregrine races in Patagonia that found darker colored individuals live in forest habitats while lighter colored individuals like the rare pallid, tend to be more in grasslands. Um, I also saw some other studies looking at like uh, Iberia um, in Spain and and found some differences depending on habitat also um, in peregrine falcon color. The females are larger than males. This is common for most raptor species. Um, And as we'll see later on, uh, they really run the show as far as the male-female relationship goes. The female also has a proportionally larger bill than the male. And southern hemisphere peregrine falcons also have proportionally larger bills than their northern hemisphere relatives. The reason for this isn't very clear. Um, it seems to be kind of a hard and fast rule that southern hemisphere populations have larger bills. Um, even though they're widely separated, uh, you know, South America, Africa, Australia, those peregrine falcon populations don't like mix or anything. so. Why they all seem to have this larger bill is is sort of a mystery. The peregrine falcon is a cosmopolitan species, meaning very widespread. It inhabits every continent but Antarctica and the Pacific Islands. In fact, they are the most geographically widespread bird species in the world. As we'll talk about later on in the show though, peregrine falcons were extirpated from parts of their range um, due to habitat destruction and the terrible effects of DDT. One area especially devastated was the eastern U.S., um, including Virginia, where I'm recording right now, where the peregrine falcon was extirpated in the 1960s. Fortunately, fortunately, reintroduction programs and the banning of pollutants such as DDT have allowed these birds to recover. There's 19 recognized subspecies of peregrine falcon, some of which are migratory and some are sedentary. Amongst the migratory populations, a lot of variability in how they migrate exists. Some are long-distance migrants, like the tundrius subspecies that breeds in the arctic region from Alaska to Greenland, but then will migrate as far south as Peru during the winter. Uh, there's even an instance of a peregrine falcon that was banded at Lake pow in the southwestern U.S. and then turned up in Japan. In general though, um, other than the migrating populations, resident peregrines really don't disperse much. One paper I read stated that out of the thousands of peregrine falcons banded in Britain, only one had been found to have dispersed to mainland Europe. I mean, yeah, so just that little English Channel, that's, nah, that's too much for them to cross. They want to, they want to hang out in England. These guys are birds of prey, not songbirds. Um, so, they really don't make a lot of vocalizations. The call you will most often hear is the alarm call, especially if you are getting too close to an active nest. At nesting sites they give some distinctive calls um, described as creaking and wailing. The creaking call is often given between mates as a sign of appeasement and affection. And then of course the nestlings make noisy begging calls too. The peregrine falcon hunting method is legendary. It's famous for attacking its prey, which largely consists of aerial birds, especially members of the pigeon family, columbidae. It attacks in a fast controlled dive called a stoop. We'll talk more about the physics of this dive a little later. But it's really impressive because it looks incredibly risky. Peregrines will dive down from a high altitude, reaching speeds close to 300 miles per hour, and strike a bird, sometimes uh, alone or within an entire flock, occasionally pulling up last minute just a few feet above the ground. They find their prey by watching from a high perch or flapping slowly and soaring at great heights, using their keen eyesight to spot prey. I actually have a story about watching a peregrine falcon um, hunt like this. Uh, I was in Big Bend National Park with my wife. We did some backpacking out there. And uh, we climbed up Emery Peak, which is the the highest point there, at around 4,500 feet. And as I was kind of chilling at the top, uh, the very top, you kind of have to do a a pretty sketchy little rock scramble. But as I'm hanging out there, um, there are all these cliff swallows flying around. Um, and then, uh, I see, uh, peregrine falcon too, um, uh, you know, not too far from me, maybe a hundred yards, um, pretty much eye level. And, uh, he's just kind of turned against the wind so that he's staying in one place, um, not even having to flap his wings and just looking straight down. So kind of just waiting for maybe one of these sparrows to fly underneath him for him to dive bomb it and grab it out of the air. They don't only kill prey with these dives though, sometimes they'll pursue them, you know, more in the manner similar to a hawk, Uh, they occasionally will also hunt on the ground. If they catch prey in a dive, often the force of the strike uh, as they grab them with their talons is enough to stun or kill the bird outright. But they will also bite through the neck in order to ensure that their prey is dead. They pluck the feathers off of birds after catching them, and sometimes will even remove the head and wings while still in the air to make them easier to carry. It's not only birds that they feed on though, they're also known to feed on bats, especially in the tropics. And they'll occasionally feed on other small mammals too. They're not above eating bugs either. Uh, insects can be particularly vital food source to migrating and island populations of peregrines. On the island of Hongdo, just off the shores of South Korea, peregrine falcons have been observed voraciously eating migratory dragonflies. As far as their bird prey goes, you know, it's mostly like passerine, songbirds, um, really any type of dove uh, makes up a big part of their diet, you know, pigeons uh, in more urban areas. Uh, They're known to prey on ducks too, though. In 2013, a peregrine falcon was observed preying on a mallard duck. And Hokkaido, Japan. They also appear to routinely prey on duck in Alberta and British Columbia in Canada, taking species such as the northern pintail, godwall, and green-winged teals. Also have been documented preying on shags, gulls, and geese. The largest animal I could find a peregrine falcon killing was a sandhill crane, a bird that's nearly three times the size of a peregrine falcon. They've also been caught on trail cameras preying on bellartic shearwaters, a bird in the puffin family and critically endangered. Basically, they just post up outside of the shearwaters' breeding tunnel entrance at night and attack adults and fledglings uh, when they enter or leave their burrow. But like I said in general, peregrine falcons mainly prey on avian species. But when the avian prey are not available or there's an abundance of another kind of prey, they will generalize their diets. Peregrine falcons will engage in a bit of banditry too, known as kleptoparasitism. Um, they'll steal food from a wide variety of birds such as gulls, crows, kites, hawks, and eagles. In turn, hawks and eagles also kleptoparasitize peregrine falcons. Occasionally, peregrine falcons will prey on other birds of prey, um, usually ones that are smaller in size, such as kestrels, sparrow hawks, and goshawks. However, I did find an observed case of a peregrine falcon killing a similarly sized black falcon in Australia. On a bit of a morbid note here, uh, they don't always kill their prey before starting to eat it. A peregrine falcon observed at a nest in Derby, UK uh, was observed plucking a live European woodcock at its nest before starting to feed it, also still alive, to its nestlings. And one last remark on feeding that involves an epic battle between three bird species. In 1999 in Humboldt Bay, California, a peregrine falcon was repeatedly observed dive-bombing a whimbrel, a type of shorebird, that was huddling terrified in the grass. After about eight swoops, a nearby common raven noticed the fray and decided to jump in, almost like a third wrestler entering the ring in WWE. The raven jumped on the wimbrel's back and began aggressively pecking at its head. The peregrine falcon swooped down one last time, knocking the raven off the wimbrel's back. Not wanting to be involved in a three-way fight, the peregrine falcon then flew off. The raven and wimbrel were left to battle it out. The raven turned to the wimbrel and spread its wings wide before jumping on its back again. The wimbrel tried to fly and run away, but the raven eventually caught it in some tall grass and pecked it to death. The poor Rimbrel, it really didn't stand a chance in this fight. Okay, now on to talk about the breeding of these birds. Um, one thing... Oh. I think that was Osprey. One thing that irks me whenever, like, in popular culture people talk about birds is you'll always hear people say, uh, like, talking about a Mourning Dove or a Song Sparrow, Oh, this bird mates for life. Um, as if it's like some shining example of a love story. Uh, Anyone who's listened to my episodes knows that this is a gross oversimplification. Like almost every bird species is, you know, sneaking off to get a little extra on the side, even if they are in like kind of a monogamous relationship. Uh, However, peregrine falcons are actually pretty committed couples. Mated pairs will stay together year after year and also often return to the same nesting site. One study out of Spain I read found that peregrine falcons on average use the same nesting site for three consecutive years in a row. Uh, Although I've also found documentation that especially in urban centers where humans provide nice nest boxes for peregrine falcons, a pair will continue using the same nesting site until either they die or are kicked out by a rival. One reason why they may have such a stable household is because their relationship is very matriarchal. Remember, the female is bigger than the male, so she can easily overpower him if need be. Peregrine falcon nesting sites are called eyries. Um, classically, it's a rock ledge or cave high up in the mountains that's safe from predators. Man-made structures like cathedrals and skyscrapers mimic this habitat. Peregrine falcons will also sometimes use nests of twigs made by other birds. A must-have for their nest site is that it provides protection from the rain. Peregrine falcon parents and babies really don't like getting rained on. I found one study uh, out of Virginia looking at their peregrine falcon populations um, that showed that bridges are particularly important nesting sites. In fact, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, which is just a couple miles down the road from where I'm recording, boasts breeding pairs of peregrine falcons since the early 2000s. Peregrine falcons have occasionally been documented nesting in odd places like on the ground, on top of oil drums, and atop giant redwood trees. Really the only thing that the peregrine falcon parents do to prepare their nesting site is called a scrape. This is exactly what it sounds like. Um, Peregrine falcon parents will scrape at the bottom of their nest site to dig out a small depression. Part of the peregrine falcon courtship ritual is for the male to scrape at a nest site, thereby attracting the female and letting her know he's ready to make babies. However, the female is his boss, um, and she makes the final decision on where she wants to nest. Males will often even bow to the female to show that he's subservient and doesn't want to solicit aggression. Parents protect their nest sites vigorously, cackling and swooping at intruders who get too close. The courtship rituals of peregrine falcons involves the male feeding the female and he also performs display dives uh, that end in sharp upward climbs. This is, you know, displays his hunting prowess. He brings her food to show that he can provide while, you know, she's sitting on the nest and then he also shows off his dives to show how he's great at capturing prey. They have a very discreet fertility period, um usually lasting about 3 weeks during which they will mate several hundred times. During this fertility period, testosterone levels in the male peregrine falcon skyrocket and cause it to produce sperm. Birds are masters of saving energy where they can. Um, outside of the breeding season, their reproductive organs shrink until they're nearly non-existent. But as spring arrives and hormone levels begin to climb, both male and female's gonads begin to wake up and begin doing their thing. Studies of male peregrine falcon sperm show that early on in the breeding season the sperm are at their peak. However, as the breeding season goes on, the male's testicles begin to shrink back down. He still produces the same number of sperm, but with increased levels of mutations, like weird little things with split heads, coiled bodies, and multiple tails. So early mating is better as far as sperm quality goes in these birds. As far as what the actual dirty deed looks like in these birds, it's mostly initiated by the female, who will land on a stable, flat surface, bow low, and offer a whine to attract the male. The male will then carefully land on her back, curling his toes inward so he doesn't accidentally claw her. They will then both flap to maintain balance as they arrange their bodies for that sweet cloacal kiss. All this lasts about 15 to 20 seconds. And remember, they'll do this several hundred times over three weeks to ensure that the female's eggs are fertilized. The female usually lays her eggs around late March or early April. A typical clutch size is three, but in an ideal environment, it can be as many as five. The female typically does the majority of egg incubating, especially in colder climates where her large body is just more efficient at keeping the eggs warm. She also has a brooding patch, a bare area, that allows direct skin to eggshell contact, while the male does not. In fact, often the only way the male can gain access to the eggs to incubate them is when he brings food to the female. Peregrine falcon parents never eat food at their nest um, before, you know, the nestlings hatch. Um, This is a smart strategy. The food scraps might attract unwanted attention from predators that would then harm their eggs. So, when the male brings a food item to the female that she likes, she will fly off and it provides a few precious minutes for the peregrine dad to bond with his eggs. He also gets to incubate the eggs while mom is spending time grooming away from the nest. An older, experienced female is able to expertly determine how much time she can safely spend off the nest, kicking the male off before the eggs get too cold or allowing him to sit longer uh, You know, if it's a warm day, say. Um, so that she can do some more self-care. After about a month, the eggs are close to hatching. Uh, During this critical time, the female doesn't let the male incubate at all. The stakes are just too high. Um, When the eggs do hatch, uh, they do so asynchronously, meaning they hatch several days apart. When the eggs hatch, um, the nestlings, which are called (laughs) ayaas, a really weird word, but kind of a cool one, Um, they're born helpless with closed eyes and covered in white fluffy down. Uh, they they look completely adorable, honestly. Uh, both parents bring food to the nestlings. However, if the female is present, she kind of takes over when the male brings food and she will pat. he will pass the food to her and then she will give it to the nestlings. After about 35 to 42 days, the nestlings will fledge. The juveniles stick around the nesting territory with the parents, but a couple months after fledging, the adults start to become aggressive towards the juveniles, uh, you know, kind of telling them, alright, gotta move on, find your own place. The juveniles will then disperse away from their breeding sites, with females going twice as far away as males. In the Midwestern US, I found a study that showed males dispersed an average of 124 kilometers from their nesting site while females went 226 kilometers away. Oddly enough, if a peregrine falcon pair is very successful uh, raising a large brood of nestlings at a nest site, they are more likely to actually abandon that nest site in the next year and find a new eyrie. This seems counterintuitive. If that nest site works so well, why abandon it? But a study out of Biscay, Spain actually found that when peregrine falcon pairs switched nesting sites, They had better breeding success than if they remained in the same site year after year. Uh, The reason for this is unclear. Possibly all the poop and debris left by a large brood results in more parasites at the nest, or nest predators are more likely to spot and remember the nest site. Since urban peregrine falcons that nest on buildings and cities throughout the world will return to their same roost year after year, in some cities they have become minor celebrities. UC Berkeley's Campanile Tower and Ellie Cathedral in Cambridgeshire, England are two examples of this. And the lives of the nesting peregrine falcons are followed closely in the community as if it were a soap opera. I found one story of peregrine falcon breeding that sounds like it came fresh out of Days of Our Lives. An adult pair nesting on the University of Montreal Tower in Canada had two babies, a boy and a girl, one summer in 2009. While the male juvenile grew normally and healthily and eventually left the nest, the female suffered some kind of injury to her right leg and was unable to put weight on it or tuck it in during flight. This led to her spending long periods just lying on her belly at the nest site and unable to provide much food for herself. So she continued to hang out with mom and dad and steal food from their lard. Her parents seemed to tolerate her presence. Um, She wasn't a total freeloader, she even helped them fend off a rival female that tried to claim the nest site as her own. However, with the coming of spring and breeding season, things turned a bit sinister. First off, the juvenile female began intruding during courtship, stealing food from her father as he tried to pass it to her mother during their feeding courtship ritual. Then once the eggs were laid, the juvenile female's jealousy began to show. When the male was incubating, she would often bully him out of the nest box, leaving the eggs without any incubation. Remember, male peregrine falcons are subordinate to females, um, so the fact that she was able to kick her dad out isn't really surprising. The mom peregrine falcon was able to hold her own against this loafing child. Um, But even she would sometimes be fed up with her kid and just leave the nest box, preferring to leave the eggs unincubated and cold rather than deal with her kid. Despite this, three of the four eggs hatched. At first, the juvenile female seemed to leave the nest box alone now that it was filled with noisy, begging babies. However, one day, she came in the nest box while her mom was incubating the babies and grabbed one out right from under her mom, flying off with it. While the dad chased her, it was too late. It's unknown what exactly happened to the nestling, but a few minutes later, both dad and the juvenile female were observed without the nestling. After this, mom and dad Falcon began to just completely ignore the juvenile female, despite her attempts to beg and scream for food. Eventually she got the hint and flew off, leaving the rest of her siblings in peace. But that's not all. That's just the beginning. Here's where it gets really weird. A few years later, that same juvenile female, now an adult, was observed a few miles away from the Montreal University Tower. She was easy to identify because she still had that gimpy leg. But now she was with a new mate. The couple was observed copulating and made a nest at the site of an old raven nest atop a highway overpass. This new mate had a leg band which made it possible to identify him, and researchers were shocked when they learned it was her brother. Remember that healthy male in the beginning who flew off to live his life while his lame sister remained behind to terrorize mom and dad? Well, somehow he and his sister ended up linking up and were now attempting to start their own family together. This incest attempt failed though. Their flimsy nest collapsed and attempts to re-nest failed also. Studies have shown that inbreeding only occurs in 4% of peregrine falcon nests. So it's very rare that uh, you know they have some kind of incest like this, and even more rare that siblings from the same brood would mate. One thing missing from the soap opera of peregrine falcon lives is affairs. Uh, like I said, they're pretty dedicated couples. Even in urban centers where nesting peregrine falcon populations can be pretty dense, um, there's not a lot of sex in the city. Um, there's almost no extra pair of paternity. A study of Midwestern U.S. urban peregrines in cities like Chicago found that only 10% of peregrine falcons changed mates, and almost all of this was due to the death of a mate. So, very rarely they will divorce. It's almost always they'll stay with their mate unless that mate dies. There has been infanticide documented in peregrine falcons. Uh, One particularly grisly case occurred in Nunavut, Canada, where after a particularly cold, wet rain, a mother peregrine falcon killed both her chicks. Possibly she knew they were going to die from weather because, like I said, rain is a major factor in peregrine falcon nest failure. They hate the rain, and if they get wet, there's a high likelihood that they're going to get too cold and die. I think the rain also affects their hunting, too, so, I mean she probably was just sparing them from suffering from freezing to death or starving to death but still there's actually a picture of her in the process of killing her nestling it's pretty brutal Um, i posted it on the dirty bird podcast reddit page i also read an account of Siblicide from southern arizona where three juvenile nestlings turned on one of their siblings and ate him the unfortunate victim of cannibalism had a genetic defect which made him unable to produce brown pigment. So it's possible because he looked different, he was viewed as prey to his siblings. This antagonistic behavior isn't the norm for peregrine falcon siblings though. The nestlings don't appear to have a hierarchy. In many bird species we've learned about on the show, I mean, shoebill storks pop up for sure, Um, The oldest and biggest nestling gets the most food and the best shot at survival. Sometimes, like, actively, you know, other nestlings in the nest will will hurt, peck, you know, try to kill um, their other siblings. But this isn't the case with peregrine falcons. Um, For example, remember how adult peregrine falcon females are larger than the males? Well, uh, this appears in the nestlings, too. Um, After about day 21, um the females start getting noticeably bigger than the males. Um, Before day 21, they're around the same size as nestlings. But day 21 rolls around, the females are bigger. If, you know, this was a more classic bird species, you'd think that, okay, she's bigger, she's going to bully him and get more food. Um, But rather than bullying the smaller males and taking all the food, um, each nestling takes turns at the most coveted position in the nest, the spot that's closest to the feeding parent. The parents, though, seem to recognize that the larger females need more food and they feed them about 25% more than they do the males. And let me also tell a heroic story that demonstrates what dedicated parents these birds are. In 2004, researchers were monitoring a nest site that was 300 feet up on a cliff face in Monte San Bartolo Regional Park in Italy. They observed four nestlings, two just starting to learn to fly, one just starting to come into its feathers and a force still covered in that adorable white fuds. They were all moving around the nest and exercising their wings. Suddenly, a strong gust of wind blew the unsteady, youngest fledgling out of the nest and he tumbled through the air. The vigilant mother, who was circling above, probably looking for food, spotted the falling nestling and swooped down, grabbing it out of the air and returning it to the nest. Then, the clumsy nestling then again fell out of the nest. And the mother, again, grabbed it out of the air. Um, this time she more securely placed it on the nest and also brought it some food to help it settle down after this first skydiving experience. And, I mean, this this demonstrates what good parents peregrine falcons really are. Um, they're very protective of their nest to the point of going full Liam Nielsen and Taken if somebody harms their babies. Uh, I present to you a crime scene as found by a researcher on the Yamal Peninsula of Russia. This researcher walked up to a well-known peregrine falcon nest site and found two dead birds. One a nestling peregrine, one a nestling peregrine, and the runt of the litter was partially eaten and lying on the ground. Nearby was a juvenile and emaciated gyrfalcon, dead and with deep, still bleeding gashes on its back and nestling feathers in its bill. Above the bodies was the Peregrine Falcon nest, with two alive nestlings huddled in fear and their angry parents sounding alarm calls. So what happened? Well, obviously the starving and bold gear Falcon had found the nest unattended and swooped down, grabbing the weakest nestling. But as he began to dig in, one or both of the Peregrine Falcon parents returned, and in an act of revenge killed the young gear Falcon. In the urban environments that peregrine falcons live in, like in cities, uh, they don't just survive, they actually thrive. A study in Great Britain that compared urban nestling peregrine falcons to rural peregrine falcons found that the urban peregrine falcons were actually more successful breeders. Urban environments, unsurprisingly, lack a lot of the nest predators that would be out in rural settings. Also, food, i.e feral pigeons, is plentiful in urban environments. One downside is that the peregrine falcons are extremely dependent on this monotypic food supply. So if something were to happen to pigeons or starlings that they feed on in cities, the urban peregrines would be in trouble. Their food supply lacks the diversity that rural areas have. Oh, I think some crows discovered me recording here. They're like, what the hell is he doing? (laughs) So yeah, I did actually find a study um, that found that urban peregrine falcons um, and rural peregrine falcons that were studying in the northeastern US, uh, they found no difference in their breeding success. So, you know, take that study out of Britain with a grain of salt. Light pollution in urban areas might actually have a positive impact on peregrine falcons by allowing them to hunt at night. Peregrine falcons in urban areas have been observed doing additional feedings of nestlings at night. Even after a full day of hunting and feeding, um, they'll you know, go back out at night because there's still plenty of light to hunt by. Um, supposedly, this helps them provide their nestlings with extra nourishment and a greater chance of survival. Alright, so let's talk about some... Oh, what is that? Oh, there's a little Carolina wren right next to me. love that rattle call all right so let's talk about some of the physical adaptations of this bird so its major superpower is its speed oh man that is just a crisp clear carolina wren song love it (laughs) he's like maybe i don't know 20 feet away on a little swamp bush. Um, I'm kind of sitting like right in a cypress swamp right now, you know, there's all those cypress knees up around me and just some little foliage, so. So, the major superpower of this bird is its speed, uh, specifically its diving speed. While flapping and flying straight, peregrine falcons are pretty much on par with a lot of other birds flying at a maximum speed of around 62 miles per hour. Uh, that's hundred kilometers an hour. However, in their dives, they go extremely quick, reaching speeds of 238 miles per hour, or 383 kilometers an hour. I'm not exaggerating here, these guys are literally guided missiles. A uh, study using computer models to study peregrine falcons uh, looking at their diving behavior found that they use the same guidance law as high-tech military guided missiles This model actually used European starlings as the prey species model, uh, which I kind of enjoyed um, You know since I'm in North America. I hate starlings with a passion. You know the whole invasive species thing Fuck you Eugene Shiffelin Hopefully he heard me in his grave up there in New York or whatever um, So uh, the reason why these guys are are basically guided missiles is um, the high-altitude, high-speed swoops that they do increase the aerodynamic forces around the peregrine falcons. And it allows them to easily make quick adjustments in their trajectory. This makes sense when you think about it. There's more air rushing past them, so all they need to do is just like a tiny little flare of their wings to change their course dramatically and quickly. As they dive, peregrine falcons modify their speed using wing morphing, meaning that they will change the shape and position of their wings to affect aerodynamics. When they first start their dive, they pull their wings in against their body, like basically they're in a torpedo shape, and this helps increase their acceleration. If they want to slow at all, they start to push their wings out. Just like guided missile systems, peregrine falcons use a strategy called Pure Proportional Navigation. This goes into some physics that is kind of way beyond me, Um, but basically this model guarantees interception as long as the pursuer is going fast enough and able to make constant corrections based on the movement of the target. The very high airspeed of the falcons dive allows them not only to close on the target, but also to exceed any variation in course made by the prey bird. Unless the peregrine falcon makes some kind of mistake, the prey bird is basically screwed. No matter how many swift turns or rolls it makes, the peregrine falcon is always going to be able to match it. As the falcon approaches its prey, it spreads its wings outwards to slow its acceleration and pull out of the dive. This is called an M formation um, that it adopts. Um, It does slow it down, um, but it also allows for maximum maneuverability allowing the falcon to make precise course corrections to capture its prey. They also have another cool adaption that allows them to dive so fast. Uh, This involves reducing drag. Their bodies are sleek torpedo shapes um, that allow them to cut through the air like a knife. However, even this body shape is susceptible to something called flow separation. Uh, Basically, think about flow separation like a rock in a stream. The rock creates eddies and whirlpools behind it that slow the flow of water similarly flow separation creates drag and turbulence in the air in order to prevent this from happening peregrine falcons have special feathers on their back that raise up while in a dive these little spiky feathers prevent flow separation and allow for a slick fast dive interestingly the physics of this concept is the reason why tennis balls have that layer of fuzz and golf balls have dimples so you can bust that fact out sometime you know like hey do you know why this tennis ball has fuzz flow separation. Another amazing thing is the body shape of the peregrine falcon, uh, which actually generates vortexes um, that through some aerodynamics that I'm not even going to pretend to understand helps further reduce drag. These birds are just so freaking cool. It's no surprise airplane manufacturers and human wingsuit designers are using these birds for engineering inspiration. As the morning goes on out here, there's definitely a lot more human noise, too, in addition to bird noise. So, I apologize for any ambulances or loud motorcycles in the background. So, you know, we just talked about some incredible fighter jet-like, you know, aspects of these birds. Um, But just like fighter pilots have to learn how to perform extreme maneuvers in their jets, young peregrine falcons have to learn how to master their hunting strategy. Juvenile falcons have been observed performing what's termed playful attacks on birds where they catch them but then release them with little or no injury. Um, I'm sure for the dove being caught there's nothing playful about this. These birds are not only incredibly fast, um, but some populations, the migratory populations, are also really strong long distance flyers. In Asia, one migratory population of peregrine falcon makes an arduous journey every fall from the Arctic regions of Siberia to the Indian subcontinent, down a path called the Central Asian Flyway that's used by many migratory birds. It's really a wonder any bird can survive this flight path. Uh, It takes you from the taiga of Siberia, across the Siberian mountains, across the Gobi Desert, and finally to the Tibetan Plateau in the Himalayas, known as the Roof of the World. Your average peregrine falcon usually likes to fly less than 300 feet off the ground while migrating. Um, They're considered a low altitude migrant. However, uh, falcons flying across the roof of the world in their migration um, are flying at altitudes well above 13,000 feet. Um, And in the Tibetan Plateau, they'll often fly 200 to 300 miles a day during their migration. Peregrine falcons are obsessive about keeping their feathers clean and preened so that they're able to perform to their maximum potential. I mean, they are a, like, bird-killing machine. They gotta, you know, keep the equipment clean. Um, so they bathe daily. Um, and I've even been observed swimming for short amounts of time in shallow ponds, supposedly as a substitute to the more typical bird-bathing behavior that you see at birds, say, at your backyard bird bath. Uh... A random fact about peregrine falcon bodies, uh, you can hypnotize them by swaying them side to side. You've probably heard of tonic immobility before. It's a phenomenon observed in the animal world where a creature is in a relaxed, almost hypnotic state to certain stimuli. Like if you flip a shark upside down and rub its belly, it becomes immobile and calm. Um, why didn't they just try that in JAWS? (laughs) Uh, But anyway, uh, I was reading a really obscure paper on what the electrocardiogram, or EKG, looks like in peregrine falcons. Um, I told you, I've (laughs) read a lot of papers for this. Um, You know EKGs, it says like squiggly sheets of paper at the doctor's office where they put all the wires on your chest um, and help show your heart function. Um, I was reading the methods section of this paper, always read the methods section, not just the uh, introduction and discussion. Uh, I stumbled across a way to induce tonic immobility in peregrine falcons. All you do is you hold them with their head upright, wrap a cloth around their body, put a hood over their head like, you know, the hood falconers use, and then sway them back and forth for about a minute. After that, the peregrines become completely relaxed and will even let you clip electrical leads to them, as they did in this study. In case you were wondering, this study found that the average heart rate for peregrine falcons is 268 beats per minute. One last fact about a body part of the peregrine falcons you probably never think about, the tongue. Um, A study of tongues of peregrine falcons showed that their tongues don't really contain many saliva glands, and the cells of the tongue itself aren't very hardy compared to birds that eat hard seeds or insects. This makes sense. Peregrine falcons are usually eating the juicy meat off of a fresh kill. They really don't need a tough tongue or much saliva to wash it down. A note on peregrine falcons' relationship with humans, uh, they surprisingly pop up a lot in archaeological articles. I found numerous archaeological papers that would get really excited whenever they found peregrine falcon bones or depictions. This is because falconry is a status symbol, and finding evidence of falconry conveys that the civilization being studied had some sort of royal or upper class. It also helped show cultural influences, remember falconry started in the Middle East and then spread to Europe. so you can kind of use falconry to date different, uh, you know, rates of spreading of uh, Asiatic cultures um, into and passing of knowledge um, into Europe. One instance of a people that didn't practice falconry, but rather just respected and possibly worship peregrine falcons are the Mississippi Valley Native American civilizations. Peregrine falcons were found as decoration on Native American bulls and vessels at archaeological sites in Moundville, Alabama. Also semi-mythical falcon warriors, um, basically a man with motifs of peregrine falcons on their bodies, um, have been found widely in Southeastern Native American tribes' artwork. All right, y'all, we've talked a lot about this bird, learned a lot of cool stuff. Um, We'll wrap up now uh, talking about their population, you know, threats to them, predators, mortality, disease, parasites, and also, of course, and with their evolutionary history. So as I said at the top of this show, DDT was the real killer of uh, peregrine falcon populations. Um, DDT makes eggshells so brittle that parents would crush the eggs when trying to incubate them. More than 50% of the population was extirpated in the US and Canada by 1970. Populations of peregrine falcons were were never really huge. Um, These birds need pretty large territory sizes, and they're very restricted in, you know, where they can nest at. So, they were never, you know, numbering in the millions. Actually, the historical population of peregrine falcons in the eastern U.S. was only estimated at around 350 breeding pairs. But, you know, then with DDT, almost all the peregrine falcons east of the Rockies went extinct. They were also intentionally extirpated from Britain during World War II. Um, this is because during World War II, you know, messenger pigeons were really important. Uh, like, radios can get jammed or, you know, the enemy can, you know, pick up the signal. But like a messenger pigeon, um, it's a little harder to intercept. Uh, you know, they like to go back to their same ruse. So they were really important for Britain to communicate to Nazi-occupied France. However, peregrine falcons also love to eat those messenger pigeons. So Britain actually eliminated all of the peregrine falcons that they could find. Um, It's estimated they killed 600 adults and juveniles uh, by shooting them. And then they sought out nests and crushed eggs and destroyed the nesting sites. The banning of DDT and then also there have been some really awesome reintroduction programs. Um these reintroduction programs are pretty successful. Um they were performed in the eastern US and Britain, um also in places like Canada, Germany, Sweden. Uh of note though, these reintroduction programs often they're reintroducing falcons that are kind of non-native subspecies. Uh for example, a lot of the ones released in the eastern US, you know, came from populations from Europe. So, it's not the same subspecies that used to be in the area that is being reintroduced. But luckily, since the 1970s and 1980s when, you know, we woke up to what a big threat uh, was happening to the peregrine falcon populations, uh, they've really rebounded great. Um, The population of peregrine falcons currently worldwide is around 340,000. This population seems to be pretty stable and doing well. Um, It was actually removed from the endangered species list in 1999. Not everyone is celebrating the recovery of peregrine falcons though. Migratory shorebirds are favored prey for peregrine falcons that live along coastal habitats. Golden plovers in the Netherlands and western sandpipers in British Columbia have been found to have lower body masses since the recovery of local peregrine falcon populations. Presumably because these birds now have to spend significant energy vigilantly watching out for falcons and then also having to alter their migration routes to avoid the peregrines. There's still some significant challenges to peregrine falcon populations, though. The threat of pollution is not over. DDE, dieldrin, and other eggshell thinning chemicals can still be found in peregrine eggshells. Uh, PCBs are also a huge problem. Heavy metals are also an issue. I found an account of an emaciated peregrine falcon from Poland that had high levels of manganese and iron throughout its organs, especially the lungs. This peregrine falcon had a few other problems too, including parasites in its air sacs, digestive tract, and fungus growing in its body tissue. It's possible the poisoning with heavy metals made it more prone to infection with these parasites. Peregrine falcons have been found dead from lead poisoning, from lead bullets they ingested. They've also been found to have high levels of cotinine, uh, a breakdown product of nicotine, uh, likely from contamination from people littering their cigarette butts. Even pharmaceuticals like aspirin and antibiotics um, have been found in peregrine falcon bodies. The levels of antibiotics are especially worrying. Um, You might think, hey, aren't those antibiotics good for falcons? It's like free drugs to protect from infection. Uh, But these antibiotics circulating in the food chain increase the risk of antibiotic-resistant bacteria forming and infecting peregrines. Examination of the gut microbes of urban peregrine falcons in Lublin, Poland found Enterococcus faecalis, E. coli, and Staph aureus. When they performed sensitivity testing on these bacteria, a strain of the E. coli was found to be resistant to tetracyclines, which is a really common antibiotic uh, prescribed a lot. Now, all three of those bacteria sound very familiar to me because I treat patients infected with them every day. So the fact that these bacteria, which can potentially affect humans, um, are Basically, getting resistance inside of these peregrine falcons could possibly be passed on to humans and be these, you know, super bugs. Um, that's pretty terrifying. We need to keep our antibiotics out of the environment. Mercury doesn't seem to be a big problem in peregrine falcons. Um, this is good. Uh, likely, it's because they very rarely eat aquatic critters. Uh, I only found one account of a peregrine falcon in Brazil capturing a fish. It was from a man-made pond. Um, The falcons weren't very good at it. Often they dropped the slippery fish back into the water after catching it. As far as some parasites that affect these guys, um, Nathostoma larvae uh, have been found in muscle tissues of peregrine falcons in Japan. Uh, they have a risk of contacting um, Cocidiae, Chlamydia, and Trichomonas, uh, which are common in feral pigeons in urban centers. But the major cause of death of these birds is actually striking man made objects um, windows, buildings, um, really, you know, any large man made object. These guys are diving at high speeds to capture prey, and if they strike something going 230 miles an hour, I mean, it's, it's going to kill them. Also, fierce territorial battles between peregrine falcons are a cause of death. In the Midwest of the U.S. between 1987 and 2009, 46 territorial fights were documented. 16 of these ended in the death of one of the combatants. That's an insane percentage, so like, if peregrine falcons are about to go duke it out, there's a 50% chance that one of them is going to die. Sometimes the very prey that peregrine falcons catch can fight back to a deadly effect. Northern fulmar, adults and chicks alike, are known to regurgitate and spray sticky stomach oil at intruders. Peregrine falcons have been found dead or dying coated in the fulmar oil that prevents them from flying and reduces their ability to thermoregulate. Peregrine falcons will occasionally get cancers, Um, I found a case of a captive peregrine falcon that unfortunately died from a retrobulbar rhabdomyosarcoma, a pretty nasty cancer of the muscles behind the falcon's eye. I also found a case of a particularly unlucky female peregrine falcon that had both a tumor called cyst adenocarcinoma of her ovary and leomyoma of her liver. Large avian predators like gear falcons, owls, and eagles have been observed preying on peregrine falcons. They also have another, more nefarious predator, humans. Yes, even though killing these once almost extinct birds is illegal, people still do it. One group with a heavy motive to do this is pigeon fanciers. They spend a lot of time and money raising specialty pigeon breeds for racing or show, and understandably get a bit pissed when a peregrine falcon eats one of their prized pets. What's not understandable is some bad apple's response, smearing a pigeon with poison, clipping its wings, and intentionally releasing it where a peregrine falcon is sure to see and capture it. As the peregrine falcon plucks the poison pigeon feathers, it ingests the poison and dies. The Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, kind of like the Audubon Society but in the UK, has an investigational unit that researches illegal activity against birds and publishes it yearly in a report called Bird Crime. I love this. I picture it like the FBI except for birds, like special agents with binoculars and holsters. The Bird Crime report from 2019 cites pigeon fanciers as the top culprits for killing peregrine falcons, followed by game wardens and egg collectors. So, pigeon fanciers, come on. I know you have that special pigeon breed with like the furry feet or whatever it's super cool but don't kill a peregrine falcon just because it wants to eat it all right let's talk about how these amazing birds evolve to wrap up the show even though falcons may seem superficially similar to other birds of prey like hawks or eagles they are actually not closely related if you've listened to my osprey and vulture episode You'll know that the Acipitiformis, which contain hawks, eagles, vultures, ospreys, and secretary birds, first emerge as part of the Afroavies radiation, where they split off from the ancestors of owls and mouse birds. Falcons, however, are part of the Australaves radiation that emerged during the breakup of Gondwana. The most basal member of this group of birds, the Sariema, sheds light on what the common ancestor was probably like. There's two species of Sariema, the red-legged and black-legged, and they live in South America. While they can fly, they are largely terrestrial birds, using their long legs to stalk the grasslands and seize up insects, lizards, and small mammals. My buddy Ricky, who does the Dirty Bird theme song, has encountered these birds in Brazil, where they are sometimes prized by farmers for guarding their livestock from snakes. I should totally do an episode on these guys, um, they're related to these prehistoric terror birds that come straight out of Jurassic Park. Um, but anyway, from an ancestor that probably was a pretty terrifying dinosaur-like predator, uh, similar to the seriemas, falcons formed, and also parrots and passerines. That's right, falcons are actually more closely related to parrots and to the very songbirds they hunt than to other birds of prey. There's also a reason why the seriemas, the most basal or early member of the falcon family, now lives in South America. The falcon family appears to have first evolved in the Neotropics around the time of the late Oligocene to early Miocene, around 23 million years ago. Indeed, the earliest falcon fossils pop up in the West Indies and in Patagonia. Where they first evolved in the Neotropics was also an area of a lot of diversification within the family, forming three subclades. The first is called Herpetotherinae. Um, it's composed of the Laughing Falcon and the Forest Falcon. The other one is called Falconae, uh, which our peregrine belongs to, and other typical falcons, kestrels, and falconids. Finally, the last clade is called Polyburinae and contains the Caracaras. I was kind of surprised by this, Um, I'm sure I've talked about how caracaras were related to falcons in my vulture episode, Um, but these birds look more like hawks or vultures to me, Um, at least the one I'm familiar with, the the crested caracara, that's mostly a scavenger. After evolving in the Neotropics, falcons very quickly spread across the world, um, as demonstrated by their widely dispersed fossil record throughout Europe and Asia during the early Miocene. It's interesting to think about, you know, during this time, falcons were invading, you know, Africa, Europe, Asia, which was already occupied by hawks and eagles, kind of similar predators. Um, And vice versa, hawks, eagles, vultures, you know, were coming over to the Americas and the falcons were already here. Um, But it seems like the hunting strategy of falcons is unique enough that it allowed them to remain within their niche um, and not compete with the hawks and eagles so much that either group drove each other to extinction the genus falco that our peregrine falcon belongs to didn't diversify until about five to seven million years ago when the climate changed and resulted in the expansion of grasslands and savannas that supported rich mammalian communities this is also demonstrated in the fossil record Um, there's a now extinct falco species that was found in lynxia region of gansu province of china Um, this remarkably well-preserved skeleton uh, contained a gerboa, a rodent very similar to a kangaroo rat, in its stomach. The peregrine falcon itself is actually a fairly recent species. It doesn't pop up in the fossil record until the mid-to-late Pleistocene, about 70-100,000 to 100,000 years ago. It's estimated that it diverged from the Teta falcon around 250,000 years ago. Um, the Taita falcon is basically a mini-me version of the peregrine falcon that lives in sub-Saharan African. 250,000 years ago lines up perfectly with the Holstein interglacial period. Um, this was a warm period when tundra landscapes were restricted and fragmented. Uh, this fosters isolated falcon populations becoming genetically diverse. So the Tata falcon and peregrine falcon probably had you know this common ancestor around this time and then as they became isolated in uh, different landscapes during this Holstein interglacial, that's when they diverged, and that's when we got our peregrine falcon. Um, I didn't see any article that explicitly stated this, but since its closest relative, the Tata falcon is in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, I think it's possible that the peregrine falcon first evolved in Sub-Saharan Africa um, from that common ancestor, um, and then it went on to disperse across the globe. Since peregrine falcons are a widely dispersed species, there's a lot of subspecies um, and also a lot of debate about what should be considered a subspecies and what should be separate. There's not a lot of genetic difference between the subspecies. Um, even the Tata falcon and peregrine aren't too genetically distinct. Um, so there's debate about whether they're actually, the Tata falcon is actually a subspecies instead of a separate species. The hierofalco group um, that contains the gear falcon, soccer falcon, and lanner falcon um, form a closely related sister group to the peregrine falcon. The prairie falcon also forms its own sister taxon to these two groups. In fact, these groups are also closely related that they can actually interbreed and form hybrids. This mostly only occurs in captivity by falconers using artificial insemination, um, but also occurs rarely in the wild too in the 1970s a soccer falcon was observed mating with a peregrine falcon in bulgaria um, but it's unclear if they had any young there's several accounts of peregrine and prairie falcons mating and producing viable young um, in the wild these hybrids further murky the waters on what a subspecies is and what's a separate species in the falcon world and then again remember that uh, a lot of subspecies that kind of basically went extinct, you know, from DDT. They were replaced with peregrine falcons from other areas of the world that, you know, brought their own genetics. So doing genetic testing now of wild peregrine falcons to try to figure out the subspecies is really complicated. Um, One reason why there's so many subspecies of the peregrine falcons is that the populations within many areas of the northern hemisphere are recent immigrants in geological terms. They likely colonized these areas within the past 20,000 years after the last glacial maximum. So that's their evolution, a bit about the subspecies. Uh, I want to close out with this. Um, One of the papers I heavily leaned on uh, for talking about the genetics of peregrine falcons was called Phylogeology of Peregrine Falcons by Michael Wink. In addition to providing some great genetic evidence, Wink ends his article with a really interesting comparison between peregrine falcons and us humans, just like the peregrine falcons we first evolved in Africa before spreading across the globe. On a superficial level, different populations of humans can look pretty different, um, just like the different feather colorations and bill sizes of peregrine falcons. However, on a genetic level, we are very similar to each other, Despite different skin colors or physical characteristics, we remain one species. I really like this comparison. Um, It seems even more apt since peregrine falcons have also now adapted to live in cities with us. Like, there's some debate whether, like, are peregrine falcons, like, tame now? Because, you know, they come to these nest boxes we have in the cities. They eat the, you know, feral pigeons that humans we brought with us to the cities. it's kind of crazy uh like that's why in my opinion peregrine falcons are the most human like bird all right y'all so that's another episode of dirty bird podcast please write views write in let me know what you think of the show and as always stay dirty fellow birdies Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song, New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranozki. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening.
1: track drive into Brooklyn ain't never coming back Tim's on the ground in the concrete jungle I might get into a little rumble